The balloons up front tie us to a volunteer celebration on Friday night, and if you weren't there, I wanted to be able to connect you in. Really 15 years ago, Community West was birthed in an evangelistic, outward-facing vision. And we also soon began a capital journey uh, that has resulted in having this land and this first phase, beautiful indoor facility. And the way the church works is the power is in the people and everything that the people contribute. And we have been really been a volunteer-based church, and all of you have contributed so much to help uh, this marker in the journey of this church, this facility, be a reality. And we just took time on Friday night to thank all the volunteers uh, just for your contribution to it, um, both seen and unseen. And so if you've been a part of this journey and have been a volunteer and contributed in some way, just know we are celebrating you. And your service is unto the Lord. Oh, nice. Nice. We, <laughs> we had... <laughs> I was kind of hoping those would come out. Um, that's kind of how we all clapped. Uh, the whole room was full of those on Friday night. <clears throat> that's fun. Thank you. Well, this past Wednesday, we began, Christians around the world began the season of Lent. And Lent is the 40 days beginning with Ash Wednesday leading up to Palm Sunday, which is the beginning of Holy Week. And Lent is a season when Christians, uh, I would call it, kind of go deeper and go quieter. And so Christians have a chance to spend more time, maybe less time on TV and social media, maybe more time in Bible reading and prayer and meditation and fasting. And that's probably the one you most associate with Lent. People will say, well, what are you giving up for Lent? And that's a form of fasting. But the idea is that we break the hold that food has on our lives so that we might be more um, accessible to hunger for God. And so these are the contours of Lent. And another practice during Lent is that Christians spend more time in self-examination and confession and repentance. And I really want to call us to a congregation to that. Now, I heard an um, illustration this week that I think was helpful. All of you clean your kitchen counters at night, right? And so uh, you clean your counter each night, but every now and then you need to pull all the dishes out of the cupboard and get at that grime that's back in the corners and that's underneath. And you need to turn the oven on the self-cleaning cycle and burn off all the crud. So Lent is a season when we do a deep clean and where we confess the things that maybe we don't have not gone deep enough to confess during the year. Our series is life-changing, and you can see the graphic. And everybody really wants uh, life and more life, a different life. Everybody thinks they have a path to life. Everybody has a strategy. Well, we're looking at stories from the Gospel of John and encounters Jesus had with people. And we're also joining Christians around the world during Lent because in the lectionary reading, uh, Christians around the world are reading these passages from John and we're doing them in our home groups. So there's a unity. 
But the thing about uh, life change is we're being very um, hopeful, we're being very expectant in this series, because John thinks that he has the key, um, John thinks that he has the key to life. And uh, we read this, and, and we're memorizing this verse, and we read it in John chapter 20, verse 31. So here it is. You know that, uh, remember that John uh, said he didn't record all the miracles that Jesus did, but he says this, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so we're just inviting you to memorize that and lean into that. So this morning we're going to have another installment uh, from the book of John. And I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. And it's also in your worship guide. And some of you will recognize it as the, the account of Nicodemus. And I'd encourage you to have the Bible reading open in your lap so you can refer to it. So this is John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter the womb a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher? Jesus said. And do you, do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to <coughs> condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for the fear that their deeds will be exposed. 
But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. The word of the Lord. Let's pray one more time. Spirit of Christ, we continue to welcome you, and we pray that you would take um, the broken shards of uh, what I might offer and take the beauty of the text and take maybe our lives, um, perhaps even distracted and not altogether plugged in, but take all of it and do something that would bring glory to Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So in today's reading, we encounter Nicodemus, and what we're going to learn is, uh, what we're going to see is the journey of a very, very good man to the cross. Now, Lent is a journey to the cross, and, you know, we have a cross up here, and we have a drape, and purple is the color of Lent, and I'd love for you to look at the cross, and I'd love for you to ask yourself, what do you think, what do you feel when you look at the cross. What are the associations you have with the cross? Well, Nicodemus, John wants, to, wants us to know, was a very, very good man. And he makes that point out of the gate, that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. That means that he was really an avid law keeper. And he was also a member of the Jewish ruling council, which means he was a distinguished Pharisee. And so what you can know about Nicodemus is that when Nicodemus walked down the street, people would sort of nod with respect to him. And parents would say, I hope you grow up to be like him. And if you were making uh, nominating for elder in your church, he would be on your short list. And so Nicodemus was very, very righteous uh, to the outward eye. And everything about him seemed to speak to his dignity and nobility. But there must have been some kind of chink in his armor. Because here we have Nicodemus, this great man, and he's coming to Jesus, and he's coming at night. And so if you ever had, you know, something happen, maybe you were set on a course, or maybe you believed something, but there was a little niggling doubt. I think Nicodemus had seen Jesus' miracles, and he'd heard his message, and there was something that hooked him. And so Nicodemus got to wondering, and maybe he knew something about himself that was being exposed. So Nicodemus got to wondering, and he came to Jesus at night, so he was Nick at night. And so (laughs) all all of this is the setup, and Jesus is going to want to show him something. Jesus is going to want to show him uh, the futility of his personal self-righteousness project. So here's the thing. Again, the Pharisees, this is what they were doing. This is what they set themselves on. There were 613 Jewish laws, and they were the keepers of the law, and they were the obeyers of the law. But Nicodemus, it says in verse 2, had seen Jesus' miracles, And Jesus seemed to know people's secret thoughts. And so he would say things to people that revealed what was in their hearts before they had even said it. And so Jesus jerks the dialogue in the direction he thinks it needs to go. And so look at verse 3. 
Jesus says to him, and this is the bombshell, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Well, of course, Nicodemus thought he already had seen the kingdom of God. He was the representative of the kingdom of God. Everything about him was supposed to really show people, this is the kingdom of God. Look at my life. And Jesus is saying, uh, no, uh, not so fast. Uh, no one can actually see the kingdom of God unless they've been born again. Now, this is the stuff that's been controversial in the church. What in the world does it mean? Some of us um, will know that the word can also be translated born from above, either as an adequate translation, born again or born from above. But what Jesus is doing is getting at Nicodemus' heart. And Nicodemus at first doesn't get it. So he says, Jesus, how can someone be born again when they are old? And how can I enter my mother's womb a second time? So then Jesus repeats himself. He says in verses 5 and 6, no one can enter the kingdom of God. Here we go again. Unless they are born of water, which probably means baptism, and the spirit. And then he says this, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. And if Nicodemus had been, really been listening, this would have been really disappointing to him to hear. Because what Jesus is saying is, there is no evolution from flesh to spirit. There is no ability for a fallen human person to sort of pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, climb up the ladder of morality, climb up the ladder and reach the divine God the divine spirit. Jesus is saying that's an impossibility. Nicodemus, I know you're trying hard. I know you're trying hard to excel and do, do the right thing, but it just won't happen. There is no evolution from flesh to spirit. And so he gives this illustration of childbirth, and I think it's a good one. He says there's something that new that has to be birthed in you. And it's a good illustration because uh, childbirth gets an agency. What do you remember of your own birth? Well, you don't remember anything. And in fact, you didn't have anything to do, to do with it. You had no agency. You were there, but all the agency was with your parents. And so Jesus is saying the agency for your goodness has to come from outside of you. And you've got to understand, this guy was a leader of the righteous Jewish sect called the Pharisees. But I wonder, I have to wonder too, if there wasn't something in, 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 in Nicodemus that already knew, this whole thing's a sham. This whole thing's a sham. I've been masquerading. And I wonder if there was something that he heard in Jesus' message that was truer. And so, uh, Jesus says to Nicodemus, it's like the wind. So the wind blows wherever it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And he says, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So again, the image is it comes from outside of you. The wind is not in your control. And so something is happening when the wind blows. You don't know where it's going to blow or when it's going to blow. And Jesus is saying the new birth is initiated in much the same way. So again, uh, I think with these passages, we have to ask ourselves, why did John include them? And why are they, in God's sovereign goodness, in Scripture? And I think that 
the Lord himself really wants us to find our way into the story. And I know that um, I am a recovering Pharisee, and everything within me left to the natural defaults to trying to manufacture my own goodness. And I can try very hard at that. And maybe you relate. And of course, what happens, it's a little like trying to keep a beach ball underwater. You can hop up onto the beach ball and you press it down. When you have to manage the way people see you and manage it so that they only see your righteousness, then that's very difficult. You have to manage it down to a very small, a very small gaze that other people can have on your life. And so what happens is when the beach ball of sin pops up to the surface, we resort to these strategies. And so we minimize our own sin or we deny it or we rationalize it or we point the finger of blame to somebody else. And so Lent is uniquely the season where we're meant to bring the finger back at ourselves. And uh, what we're going to learn is uh, what makes it safe to do that. So all this is happening. And Jesus says, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. And Nicodemus still doesn't get it. He says in verse 9, how can this be? And then Jesus says, well, you're Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things. And really what he says is, you don't know this. And I think the dynamic is you have two teachers who are sparring. Now, Nicodemus first addresses Jesus as rabbi, and then later Jesus addresses Nicodemus as Israel's teacher. And you have two teachers who are sort of competing about what they know. Now, that's not really true, but as far as Nicodemus goes, see, Jesus hasn't fully been revealed in his glory, and as far as Nicodemus knows they're really talking about what do they know. And I think that's important because, uh, you know, I've mentioned Fleming Rutledge, and she has a long discussion in her book, The Crucifixion, about modern-day Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, the root is gnosis, which is a word that means knowing. And Rutledge makes the point that much of modern-day Christianity is Gnosticism. And the way you know is that um, people have developed, and the code is often, um, I'm spiritual, or I'm involved in spirituality, but the idea is they've transcended Christianity or a biblical faith. And so Rutledge says, it all comes back to what you think you know. And so it's very common these days for people to assemble an eclectic, personalized, version of Christianity, and what Rutledge would say is that uh, folks have often jettisoned the fundamentals of the Christian faith. So Nicodemus and Jesus, they're really sparring in a way about what they know. Now, I think there's love in Jesus' eyes, but they're really wrestling with what they know. And so Jesus says, you're Israel's teacher. So now, Jesus is going to zero in on what he, want, what he thinks Nicodemus doesn't yet know and needs to know. And that comes in verse 14. And so here it is. And so they're talking, and they're talking about being born again, and Nicodemus doesn't get it, and he's pushing back. And then Jesus says this, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, 
that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, some of you will immediately recognize the whole lifted up language and the whole thing about, um, yeah, being lifted up. It's a reference to the cross. It's a forecast of the cross. We're probably close to three years before the cross happens, but Jesus is like James Dobson on the family or Al Gore on the climate change. You could ask Jesus. I think if you'd hung around Jesus, you could ask him what he had for breakfast, and a few seconds later, he'd be talking to you about the cross. It was the main event for him. It was the thing he cared about most. It was the reason he came. And so in these texts, last week it was the wine. And I said to some of you, some of the home groups were asking me about it. And some of you said, well, he changed water into wine. Why did he say my hour has not yet come? Well, my hour has not yet come refers to the cross. And so Mary just said, um, hey, they're out of wine. And his brain is exploding. And he's looking back to the dripping wine that's a forecast of the Messiah. And he's looking forward to his blood on the cross commemorated by the communion wine. So here it is. Jesus has got his crucifixion, his crucifixion, his crucifixion on his mind. And John takes that thread and weaves it through his entire book. And so here we are again, week two in the installment. And Jesus is saying, they're talking about something else. And then, John, and then Jesus says, Yes, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes may have life in him. And so the reference is to Numbers 21, when the rebellious Israelites were afflicted in their wilderness wanderings with poisonous snakes. And so I'll just show, the re- show you the reference. This is what Jesus was appealing to. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. That's the key phrase. Can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake, they looked at the bronze snake and they lived. So why did Jesus refer to that? I think he's helping us understand this idea, the way he looks at his upcoming sacrifice on the cross is in terms of substitution. See, the snake in the Genesis story uh, was what represented sin. The serpent deceived Eve and Adam. And Jesus is saying that he will take the place of the snake. He will become sin on behalf of sinful humanity. So what he is saying is uh, he will take our place. In Galatians, it says he will become a curse for us. Cursed is the man hanging on the tree. He will become the curse for sin. He will take the punishment we deserve so we won't have to. It's the whole notion of substitution. And it's Jesus' under self-understanding of the cross. And here it is. So here's the thing. What Jesus understood was that, you know, God is holy and pure and humanity is tainted from birth by sin. And so we're helpless to close the gap ourselves. And so we need, we must have someone to stand in our place because we're helpless to solve sin on our own. And so he says to Nicodemus, here's the thing. This is what you've got to do. If you want to know about the new birth, if you want to receive the new birth, it's going to be faith in the one who will be lifted up on the cross. Um, So coming back to this thing, they're talking about what they know. And Jesus is looking into Nicodemus' secret thoughts. 
And he must have some niggling doubt about how he's been masquerading his own goodness. And so Jesus is talking about receiving forgiveness through Christ's death on the cross. And he's talking about what they both know. And I think it's so interesting that the Apostle Paul, who is himself a very learned man and an accomplished Pharisee, he would later sum it up uh, to the church at Corinth this way. He said, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you this testimony about God. And here it is. He said, for I resolved to know. Do you see the language? And that's, there's a lot behind that. You look all through the book of Corinthians and you find that they had a different type of knowing and they believed that they had a, an elite superior faith. And so Paul is coming in and he is saying, away with all that, I resolve to know one thing and one thing only, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Are you with me? See, um, I think sometimes uh, no one would make this up. One of the reasons I find Christianity compelling is no one would make, a, make up a faith like this. No one would make up a savior who talked all the time about his upcoming crucifixion. No one would rig it this way. I think it's the most compelling thing we have that this is of God because no one would have done it this way. So then John turns to his readers and he's trying to form us. It's not just Nicodemus, but he's trying to form us. And basically, he says, how, do you, how, do you, um, how does he want us to think about the cross during Lent? See, I think a lot of us, we don't know how to feel about the cross or how to think about it. And there's even, it's even um, common that you will hear people say, well, oh my gosh, you know, people will shake their heads and say, what an unfortunate development in Jesus' life. And he must have been some kind of a helpless victim. He must have gone there reluctantly. He must have not really wanted it, but he had to do it. And of course, the cross is ghastly. And the cross is gruesome and painful and torturous. But what was the cross to Jesus as well? And so John is trying to help us understand um, really the divine motive and so John gives this, phrase, this, this verse that we've all heard, but most of us didn't know it was attached to the Nicodemus story. So John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So there's the motive. The motive is love. The motive is love, full stop. Well, surely Jesus must have been a helpless victim. Surely he must have been reluctant. Well, no, if you're helpless in something, then you're not able to love. It ha there has to be intention. And so uh, this is the thing I've loved really meditating on this week is the intention, the divine intention of the cross. And I just want to fast forward in John to John 10, Jesus' words. He says, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. And this is the part I want you to see. No one takes it from me. So you got to get that. No one takes my life from me. I'm going to lay it down, but no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So was Jesus a helpless victim? Was Listen, remember his arrest. The soldiers came to arrest Jesus with clubs and spears. And Peter cuts off 
one of the soldiers' ears. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Do you see the intention here? Do you see the, do you see the willing and willful intention of the Savior to complete the work of the cross? And then finally in John 19, when Jesus was before Pilate, where do you come from, Pilate asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And this is the part I want you to see. Jesus said, you, don't have, no, you, don't, you have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. So who was orchestrating the whole crucifixion and resurrection events? Who was behind it? It was the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit working in concert to accomplish the work of salvation. And so this is what John, this is what John wants you to see. He wants you to deepen in this. He wants you, when you see the cross, he wants you to feel something. He wants you to begin to feel the intention and the love of God there. And so this is how we uh, put it very simply. You know, what's the message of Christianity and what's the center really of Lent, it's this message. The Lord Jesus loves you. How do we know that? We know that because he died for you voluntarily. Do you see that? I hope you're beginning to maybe just invest the cross with something beyond maybe the associations you had had before. Well, we come to Lent, and in her book, Amazing Grace, Kathleen Norris tells the story of working as an artisan residence at a school, teaching children how to write poetry using the Psalms as a model. So again, she's working in a school, teaching kids to write Psalms, and one little boy wrote a poem entitled, The Monster Who Was Sorry. Are you with me? So the little boy began by admitting that he hates it when his father yells at him. His response in the poem is to throw his sister down the stairs, then to wreck his room, and finally to wreck the whole town. And the poem concludes, Then I sit in my messy house and say to myself, I shouldn't have done that. So here's what... Uh, Jesus knew about Nicodemus. Here's what Jesus knew. He knew that both good people and bad people live in a messy house. Now, there are bad people's sins and good people's sins, and bad people's sins are extortion in your business practices or child abuse. You know, bad people's sins are shameful things like breaking the law or doing prison time. But good people's sins are equally offensive to God. And so good people's sins are rage and gossip and slander. Good people's sins are lust and envy and pride and sloth and gluttony. Good people's sins are spiritual pride. Good people's sins are independence from God. And so here's the thing. Jesus knew that everybody sits in a messy house and he, would, he knew that we would somehow need the love of God to make it safe 
to bring those things out into the open in confession, trusting that we would be forgiven and remade and restored. So here's the thing uh, Nicodemus is learning. He's learning that the cross makes confession safe. See, the paradox of good new, the good news of Jesus is nothing frees us to confess like knowing that our sins are forgiven. Are you with me? So if we're going to enter into Lent and we're enter into the deep clean, the confession of Lent and experience the cleansing of the season, then we need to know that when we come to the cross, the cross is a place of forgiveness. It's the presence of holy love that makes it safe for us to enter into self-examination, confession, and repentance and be honest about that. So what, Jesus, what uh, John is doing really is inviting Nicodemus and inviting us, his readers, to faith. See, the unexpected light source in the graphic is faith in the crucified Christ, which is an expression of the love of God. It's the love of God shining there. And faith in John is more than mental assent. It's really union. Faith is not belief that something is true. It's entrusting your life into a living being who is Christ himself. And so our question is, um, how do we receive that faith? Uh, And did Nicodemus believe? And I find it comforting the way that John looks at faith because he sees faith as a process. It's not one and done. Faith is not a gate through which you walk once. Faith is more of a path on which you walk daily. And so it's a process. And you might ask the question, well, Jesus said to Nicodemus, the whole thing about being lifted up so that you may believe and have eternal life. And then we ask the question, well, did Nicodemus believe? We're not really sure by the end of this. And then there are two other cameo appearances in John. In John 7, Nicodemus defends Jesus when the Pharisees are on a manhunt. And then in John 19, Nicodemus was with Joseph of Marimathea at the tomb preparing Jesus' body for burial. It sure seems like that there's growing evidence of faith. It sure seems like that faith is taking root. But if you're somebody who says, well, I'm not so sure about my faith, and sometimes I have doubt, I think you can be comforted by the story of Nicodemus, that um, faith is something that the Spirit is uh, blowing into our lives, and it helps when we come together in a gathering like this. So really, the invitation, <clears throat> the invitation of Lent is to examine our own messy house. And I was uh, thinking about how, where, what areas of my life are in disarray. And I think about, honestly, the use of technology and especially uh, how wet I am to the phone and particularly toward the end of the night and I'm still on it and sometimes playing um, games on it. And there's something about it that um, is, in, is in disarray. And there are other areas of my life that are in disarray. And so really the invitation, again, it's safe 
The cross makes confession safe. And the question is, what is the area of your life that's in disarray? Where does your house need a type of confession and cleansing? It might be um, some area of impurity. It might be uh, relationships where you have um, acted in a way that has um, created uh, difficulty and havoc. It might be that you were involved in something deliberately right now that you know is wrong and you haven't repented of that. You haven't confessed that. It might be uh, something that life has just become overwhelming to you and you haven't put the big rocks in place. It might be that it's been ages since you read your Bible or prayed. And so Lent, um, Lent is an acknowledgement uh, through confession and repentance that we can come um, to the Lord in prayer and we can confess, we can do the deep clean, we can get at the grime, and we can have an extended time of confession. And we might even want to bring somebody else into that. Um, it's a practice, a long-standing practice of the church to confess our sins to each other. And you might want to confess your sins to me, or you might want to confess your sins to your home group leader. And you might say, well, why would I do that? Well, you don't need to do that to be forgiven, but you may find that it is very, very helpful to you if another human person hears what you have done or who you are and says to you, I'm not shocked, and in Christ your sins are forgiven. You know, it is beautiful when you share something that you think is going to shock the world, and nobody is shocked by that. Um, and the reason is, is we all know our own hearts. But this is the deep clean. This is the deep clean of Lent. And it's the type of thing uh, that he was going, Jesus was going for with Nicodemus. And at the end of the passage, you'll see this part in towards verses 21 and 20 and 21, where there's this perverse appeal in the human spirit to stay in darkness. And so he says that the call is to bring out into the light the things that God knows anyway. So friends, I just want to call you um, into this practice this week of self-examination and confession, some extended time and repentance. And I'm just going to also leave this with you. We've been talking a lot about the cross, and I've got a little small cross. And we're going to give you one on your way out. And some of you have the olive wood crosses that feel good in your hands. I like that this one has sort of the sharp edges. And also, the point of this one is not so much to feel it, but to look at it. If you look at this text, it's all visual. Moses and his people looked to the snake, and then Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to look to the one hanging on the cross prospectively. And what we're doing here is we're putting this, maybe you tape it, maybe you can drape it. There's actually a little place to string it. You could drape it on your uh, bathroom window, or you could put it in your study, or you could put it on your refrigerator, or you could put it by your bedside. And when you look at it, what we're doing as a community is, as we're forming how we see it, we're seeing the Savior's sacrificial love. 
we're seeing the invitation to confess and to be remade. And this, my friends, is the work of Lent, and it's the work of the church. Thanks be to God, we're doing it together. Let's pray. Actually, what I want to do uh, with prayer is I want to invite you into um, confession, corporate confession, and you can take whatever posture works best for you. You can stand, or you can sit, or you can kneel. And so it's going to come up on the screen, and what I'm going to invite you to do um, is do is is pray uh, with me, and you'll be praying the people part. So let's prepare to pray. Most holy and merciful Father, we confess to you and one another that we have sinned by our own fault in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. Now your part. For all our unfaithfulness and disobedience, for our spiritual pride, Lord, have mercy on us. For our unrighteous anger, bitterness, and resentment, for all lies, gossip, and slander against our neighbors, Lord, have mercy on us. For our sexual impurity, our exploitation of other people, and our failure to give of ourselves in love, Lord, have mercy upon us. For our self-indulgent appetites and ways, our love of worldly goods and comforts, Lord, have mercy upon us. For our blindness to human need and suffering and our indifference to injustice and cruelty, Lord, have mercy upon us. For our neglect of prayer and worship, for our presumption and abuse of your means of grace, Lord, have mercy upon us. For our failure to commend the faith that is in us, Lord, have mercy upon us. And then we together pray, have mercy on us, O God, in your great goodness, through the saving work of the Son, cleanse us from all our sin, for you are a merciful God, full of compassion, abounding in loving kindness. We trust in the assurance of your forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.